So I'll introduce you real quick. Uh, sitting down uh, with Bill Aiken. Uh, is it Aiken or Eakin? Yeah, it's Aiken. Huh? Okay. Um, I, I'd heard Eakin, and then I I, I said Aiken, but uh, anyway, wanted That's to good call. Wanted to confirm. <laughs> uh, so hey, I'm happy to finally sit down with you. You know, we were talking a few months back, and um, just it just now got to get together. So yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time well, and, and reaching back out. Well, and thank you uh, for having me, yeah. Brian. Yeah, so we're actually going to do two parts. Uh, we're going to talk today about early, early Bill, um, and just kind of intro the audience. And I think uh, we'll follow up on uh, some more recent work that I'm also uh, equally as excited to talk to you about. So. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. Yeah, so um, ironically, um, I I didn't know until I started looking into your background that you have a serious background with philosophy. Yeah, uh, and. You know, I'd seen you, uh, my philosophy professor, Dr. Charles Bush, just mm -hmm. passed away. Uh, well. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, a great, uh, great professor. I had him for all of his stuff except for one class. Yeah. Charlie Bush uh, hired me when I first came here at Arkansas Tech. Really? And so, yeah, I worked uh, part-time there for a long time. Worked part-time at U of O, University of the Ozarks. Mm -hmm. Um but Charlie and I, you know, worked together. And when I went on sabbatical, he came. I got to, I got to tell. I, I guess I can say this now that no one can bug him to do it. He came and taught a class for free. Wow. For me, we you know one of my classes up at the University of the Ozarks. Wow. Just because he, he was dang decent. He one of the best people I've ever met. Absolutely. O honestly, and um, a good thinker too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I'm really look. I recorded. On a little, uh, little handheld task cam, uh -huh. all of his lectures. Oh wow! And I, I have them. Oh and, wow! But they're not organized. They're like just named numbers, like X zero two nine four, whatever the. Sounds like a good all night broadcast someplace. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it, but uh, I, did you know uh, Professor David Krieger? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay, so I had him. He, he was, was equally historian. equally important. But he did something like that when UACCM was setting up. Um, uh, they started teaching Western Civ when they converted from just a technical college to actually offering genetic courses. Right. And um, Krieger went up there and uh, kind of got the got the thing up and rolling. You know, uh, Thomas Flowers he uh, teaches there, uh, but was uh, an admin like a vice chancellor or something. Right. And uh, right. he was telling me all about this. I'm like, wow. Yeah. So the first thing I saw, taught when I came to Arkansas Tech, they had they started the the core humanities course called arts and ideas oh wow and so i got to teach that and i had to, what it what meant is i had to learn a heck of a lot really fast because i had a degree in philosophy but not in music and not in art and you know and so i learned art history and music and religion and poetry and yeah. literature I did all sorts of stuff in order to get ready for it and uh, it was probably the best learning experience i've i, I had and I ended up teaching that at our at the University of the Ozarks too, and figured, well, I spent thirty years teaching around here. That was the best education I could get. Yeah. Well, yeah, I felt that way. Um, you know, and two, I walked away with so many uh, my notes. You know, because I, 
essentially taken courses I'd taken and converted those notes and to my notes and expanded yeah. on it and research and I just a period of refinement for four years so but some courses I took uh, Krieger for for example I'm working on right now um, Enlightenment French mm-hmm. Revolution mm-hmm. Napoleon yeah so I ended up teaching courses like that that they're history courses but also history of of the fine arts and because of that I ended up taking students all over the world so we, yeah, I saw we, you went to Egypt. Yeah, we went to Egypt. We went to India. We went to Greece wow. several times. We went to Italy several times. Went to France. Went to Germany, uh, and some of those places I had already been. But some of them were, you know, just a way for me and the, my co-workers. Um, I had a couple other professors, you know, go with us. It was our way to see the stuff we were doing live and in color. You know, so it's it's a weird thing to talk about architecture without seeing the buildings. But when you're showing it to to people, the students, and some of the students from here had never been outside of Johnson County or Pope County. And so it was literally a chance for them to uh, step off into the desert of Egypt. What years were you uh, doing these um, travel abroad lessons? Oh, well, I... um, I sup- it was it actually before I was even hired full-time at the University of the Ozarks that I did a lot of travel abroad stuff. So I think that was 1999, 1998. Okay, wow. And, uh, and, and really, my full-time, I, I was pretty, I was teaching pretty full-time. My yeah. per capita was really high, so I'd seen a lot of students. Um, and so finally, I think they decided they needed to hire me. And so what I did was finished up my PhD. So mm-hmm. I worked full time uh, at U of O. I went back and forth up to Fayetteville to finish a PhD I had started at UC Davis, California. And then I had three kids and I was a single dad. So a single dad teaching, uh, teaching all of that and then going driving up and down the road, you know, and it wasn't like I-49. It was like Highway 71 or the Pig mm-hmm. Trail. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Man, that, that makes crazy. My, my wife Laura sick. Uh, yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, last time we went a different way to get to, we went to Eureka Springs just a few uh-huh. weeks ago, mm-hmm. that, um, oh, I guess we just went up seven, right? Yeah. And uh, cut, cut over, and I hadn't gone that way to get there, but the last couple of times we took the Pig Trail, it was rough. It's beautiful, though. It is. And I love it, and I love it even in the ice and snow and, and fog. Fog especially, because it, it seems like it's one of the roads. The 71 was a road where big, you know, pick big trucks uh, would have jackknifed. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you're up in the middle of the mountains and you're stuck. And so, you know, it a, makes a long commute. But, wow, it was great. Uh, it was an adventure. Yeah, yeah, wow. So um, a huge fascination with Egypt I've not been. Yeah. Uh, I took... Wow. Professor Krieger for a seminar in ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was very influential on me, and that is one of the areas like I've already re- kind of ready to go on doing something with that yeah. uh, podcast wise. Like yeah, I just yeah. um, I, have, I have a lot of lot of stuff to put together with that, but uh, I really enjoyed that. What are some of the places you went to in Egypt that stood out? Well, um, you know, of course, we went to Giza. Mm-hmm. And so that was that involved things like going inside the Great Pyramid. Did you climb it? No, they, I don't think we were. I think we could climb part of it, 
so they were kind of being careful about what they're yeah yeah but um as i recollect but we went inside it which is pretty amazing i think you have to pay a guard 20 dollars to <laughs> That's that what I heard. That might have been the flaw. Might not even be a thing on the other side of the Arab Spring. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah it changed. It, this was right at the beginning of the Arab Spring, so yeah. it was like it was over by the time we had gone. So, yeah. or it had kind of kicked in at least. Yeah, that, so that yeah, did change no. quite a bit with with antiquities and. But, um, but yeah. we went to Abu Simbel. We went up and down the Nile. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm fascinated with the deities. Yes. Uh, and so I we we went to the temple of Isis on the island of Philae. Yes. Oh man, so moving and so emotional, and so incredibly powerful. And I guess that's so in my literature, in my writing, and in my philosophy, I'm yeah. always interested in that sense of like being awestruck. And boy, what better place to be awestruck than Egypt. Yes, and it's interesting um, with some of the sources we have, like we mm-hmm. have all of this Egyptian mythology mm-hmm. and magic, uh-huh. spells, incantation, mm-hmm. um, the religion, mm-hmm. but they didn't leave a whole lot of, like the Greeks, philosophical papyri for us to be, you know, oh, okay. There's a lot of interesting philosophy, though. There. But there is, yeah. and you can glean that from um, those other sources. But, you know, one of this uh, uh, Egyptologists I really admire, uh, Dr. Bob Breyer, uh-huh. he talks about how uh, Plato said, I believe, uh, that this is Plato, that, you know, the truest philosophy you don't, you don't write down. No, absolutely. Well, that's Socrates. Okay, or okay. Socrates In Plato's by dialogue. Plato. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Socrates didn't write anything yeah, down as yes. far as we know. Had no students. And so it left a perplexity of kinds of questions like did Socrates – so Socrates would ask – would show people they didn't know what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm doing you a favor showing you how ignorant you are because, by the way, that, that means you can now go out and learn. And all this time you weren't learning. And so he says this in front of 501 people who are looking at putting him to death. Which they yes, do, of course, yes. and so they they're they're gonna they're putting him to death, and he says, and they say, well, look, all you got to do is change what you're doing, ask, stop asking so many dang questions, uh, and he says, well, I couldn't do that. I, I what I'm doing is asking questions, because that's the right thing to do, and what it does is it shows all you 501 citizens how idiotic and stupid you are, and I'm doing you a favor. <laughs> because I'm because now you can go learn. And, and you're being impious and yeah. corrupting the young. <laughs> well, and you know what? I think we'd all put him to death for that. You're um, calling me ignorant and you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. So I think that's just that's wonderful, and that's what Aristotle says. Um, philosophy begins with wonder, and he means partly curiosity, but it's a lot mm-hmm. more than that too. I think it's also a sense of being awestruck. And Plato, Plato in the Timaeus says, you know, the reason we were formed with eyes was so that we could look up and see the stars. And I think that's brilliant. I just think that's just really true. And he meant also so that we could do the math of the stars and, you know, get sort of, you know, moved into thinking about how the structure of the universe is. But I think it's also just being awestruck. I mean, that's so... I, I think 
philosophy and literature and some of the best things that I try to do are about getting awestruck. Yeah, certainly. certainly. And if, if I'm not awestruck by something, I wonder why I did it, you know? Yeah, it, you know. Uh, and even the Bible, by the way, you know, there's a psalm, uh, stand in awe and sin not, but stand in awe is the first part. And I think, phew, you, you, it got you. You know, with the Psalms, um, there are a lot of parallels mm -hmm. with Egyptian literature. Mm -hmm. uh, the the sure. I, I forget which Psalm it is, but uh, I have it in my notes: the hymn of Aten. Do you need a little extra slack there? No, I'm okay. good. Good. Um, but uh, the hymn to Aten. Aten yeah, yeah, yeah. was this heretic, pharaoh, monotheistic sort right. of. Right. Um, it, 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 people get into a debate on that because. Um, he was having the people worship him, and then he was worshiping this other god for them. Right. So people have debated if it was a true monotheistic religion. I, I see it. I've seen it as such. That's what everybody remarks on that pharaoh. Yeah. But uh, eighth, 18th dynasty, um, right, right there at the end. But it's interesting. That's, that's one case. There's another one called uh, Sometimes It's a Stone Found in a Farmer's Field, The Philosophy of a Memphite Priest. Yeah. And there's some parallels with the creation story. Right. Uh, Enuma Elish found in Mesopotamia. There's parallels with the creation story with that. Uh, Dr. Bush used to always say uh, there are over 200 creation myths, stories. Right. And uh, two-thirds of them contain a flood. Yeah. Well, and, of course, the the primary model for the Genesis story is, comes out of the Epic of Gilgamesh out of Sumer. Yeah, the, and the parallels there, yeah. The parallels huge. are more than parallels. They're amazingly similar. The leaf with the bird. Uh, with the exception of the bird and a few other things that some of the order is reversed. Mm -hmm. So what gets sent out at, from the boat is at different times, mm -hmm. you know, differs from the biblical account. But I, I kind of I'm not sure. There's lots of ideas about where where the biblical and other parallels come from and why they're there. And some people argue, well, that proves that it's a history. Well, no, it doesn't really. What it does is it proves that there's shared stories yeah. that from ancient Sumer and Egypt. Plato himself says, everything I, I learned, I learned in Egypt. That's what really got us going down this yeah, and two that I was thinking that earlier is the not writing the philosophy down and how much of the Greek influence came from the Egyptians with uh, building in stone with philosophy, uh, that's going and studying with the priests. Well, Socrates, you know, is is famous for saying, you know, know what you don't know and know that you don't know what you don't know, and if that's true, then we then that's why we need to know how stupid we are about so much and mm -hmm. how little we know. And how small, you know, the spectrum of knowledge is. And when we write it down, Socrates thought, you've made it concrete and it's no longer living. And because it's no longer yeah, living, yeah. you know, you don't have that sense of awe, that sense of awakening, this sense of surprise. Mm -hmm. Plato says, what I want to do is in drill, he has Socrates say in his literature, I want to drill into your head until you realize you don't know what you're talking about. And then there's a moment where you're stung by this. There's a fish that stings you and paralyzes you for just a moment. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to be paralyzed for just a moment so you can shut up and listen. Mm -hmm, just and, appreciate. And that's, I think that's really powerful. Because it really means 
you know, once you're really stunned, you're totally disoriented. You're totally cut aloof. You're cut off from all the things you believe and want and know and thought you know. Uh, and then suddenly you really can start hearing and seeing different things. Mm -hmm. And man, I believe in that. So yeah. I guess that's why I got into philosophy in part was because it, you know, it teaches you to see, as does religion, the best of religion. It, it teaches you to see differently. Yeah. And so does traveling. So does traveling to Egypt and Greece. Certainly. You know, you see the world differently. Certainly. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, question, just because I, I have you as a, uh, a mind in the studio, not, and I I'm, I'm really don't know what I think about this. I want to uh -huh. ask more philosophers what they think about uh -huh. it. But Dr. Bush will bring this up, that there is perhaps some debate that maybe Socrates was just a character in Plato's dialogues, even though there is another reference uh, of Socrates by a different... Xenophon. Yes. There are several others, but... And, in fact, there are other accounts of his trial, but the way they present him in his trial is different. So uh, Xenophon sees him as m more in political terms and less in metaphysical, philosophical, spiritual terms mm -hmm. like Plato does. So Plato has him, uh, is, it's obvious he's a character, and there's at least part of Plato's dialogues where he's putting Plato's thoughts yes. into Socrates. And what's, what, and for a while it was important for philosophy, mid-century, last century, it was impossible, it was important for them to figure out when's Plato's being Plato, and when's Plato's Socrates really presented as Socrates. And so they developed a whole chain of the, the historical development of his dialogues mm -hmm. where they argued at the beginning, you're just ask, he's just asking questions, and he leaves yes. the questions open. And that's, those are the quote-unquote Socratic dialogues. Mm -hmm. But then there's dialogues where they start teaching about things, or Socrates starts teaching about things that are like the good and the beautiful and the just, and he starts giving answers. And, and these guys back in the mid-century said things like, well, that must be the real Plato coming through, or as he learns, he develops it mm -hmm. and gives his answers. Uh, so it's, most people think Socrates was around, but he could very well have been. The way he's presented is certainly literary and certainly an invention. Yeah, you know, and this is, uh, you take a figure in history like Romulus. Mm -hmm the mythical first king and founder of Rome, yeah. you know, which I, I love going into that Roman kingdom period. Yeah. But, um, y you know, you take somebody like him, most scholars agree he's an archetypal figure. Right. You know, perhaps based off of a few early people that we just don't know enough about and later people telling this story. But um, I've wondered if, if there isn't some sort of, an you know, like you mentioned, how he's viewed political terms, philosophical terms. Yeah. Um, maybe well, there is some, some archetypal possibility. If you go back that far, so one of the options for, you know, imagining that there's a reason why everybody has similar myths about the flood mm -hmm. or myths yes. about creation, one of the arguments is we learned it from each other culturally or it was diffused. Mm -hmm. Another argument is there's just structures in our mind that when we see things, we think of them in a particular way. 
and that we share a, a conscious mind, at least some people think, a sub, or a, a kind of set of archetypes that we refer to again and again, and you end, it, end up seeing it in art and in literature. And for me, that's where that sense of awe gets really drawn mm -hmm. out. So like I'm awed when I read, well, the Genesis account of Noah, which is kind of cool, interesting. I, I don't approach it as history per se, but I see it as a as a, a oh an awesome thing. Mm -hmm. But then when I read the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, with Utnapishtim, who is the Noah character, literally, you know, literally the Noah character, I, I start getting awed by that too. And then mm -hmm. when you see a whole bunch of it, you realize there's something these kinds of myths or the writings or the stories or the, you know, good old you know, paintings from antiquity, those things kind of reach into you and grab you. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the best literature comes from, too. And so I'm, that's what I'm doing in a lot of my writing, going, yeah. kind of digging in, not intentionally to the archetype, but when you hit one, you say, wow, it, whether there is an archetype or not in all of us, there's something that makes, you know, our, our strings vibrate. Yeah, and I, I, I mentioned this as maybe before we started uh, recording, but, um, you know, this this fascinating concept so of the muse, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it, I go into when I uh, talk about uh, the library at Alexandria and then the museum mm -hmm. that was also built. Um, it was the, the muse, the place of the muses, the place yeah. of the nine muses. So yeah. um, it, it's interesting that that the museum. I, I try and make that. It's connection. also interesting that we can be amusing, right? Yeah. So I mean, the muse is all over the place, and so I think that when a a, a, a poet or a lyric, uh, someone who writes fiction from a lyric perspective, which is what mm -hmm. I'm really interested in, uh, really sings, is when they stop speaking themselves, and so they're quiet like Socrates right mm -hmm. and they just let it out and letting it out you get in touch with you know literally the strings that are vibrating in you and that's something like the muse so I see myself and I spend a lot of time talking about it in my fiction a lot of, I mean, you know I'm amused and mused by the muse I'm drawn to it and you see it in other people but they're kind of just living toward what that what that muse is too. Mm -hmm. So Dante had his muse, and he followed her and wrote about her, and you know put her in the highest heavens. But it was really something that she no human person could ever do. It's just some kind of well, I put it in terms of wonder and awe. Yeah. It's just knocked flat. So when I write a so I write short stories mostly because mm -hmm. I got really busy when I was, when I first moved here and was teaching and going, you know, all the stuff I was telling you, I didn't have time to write a novel. So I wrote a whole bunch of short stories, mm -hmm. literally for 30 years. And all these stories work only when I stop being me and I just let it go and I let it go and the muse just speaks and sings. And I put it in terms of, frogs in the swamp singing because I can hear that same thing there mm -hmm. and I hear it in the stars and the, you know the stars were supposed to by the Greeks supposed to have emitted a sound so there's the the music of the spheres 
the music of the sphere, the music yes, of yes. the spheres. There it is. There's the muse again. It's all in everything. And people like William Wordsworth in the 19th century and some of those poets spoke a lot about that. There's something in the setting sun or something in the rising of clouds that just makes you makes you full of wonder. Yeah. I, my yeah. dad was in the Air Force, and so he tra we traveled around quite a lot. But he was... His favorite, he was a weatherman. And so what, what he did when we were in the Pacific, and we were over Japan and Okinawa and Guam and places like that, um, he, he would get in a typhoon, he'd get in a, a typhoon reconnaissance airplane, and they'd fly into a typhoon, a hurricane, and be in the eye and travel around the Pacific uh, doing barometric pressure readings. And... As he did that, he said the most beautiful things on earth that he ever saw were sunsets from the middle of an eye, literally the eye of a hurricane. And, you know, that I just that made such a dent in uh, me. And that, that, that wouldn't even have been possible in the ancient world. No, absolutely not, because if the hurricane comes, you go hide. Yeah, wow. That Although in Okinawa and places like that, the farmers would go out and fish. You know, right in the middle of a typhoon. They died doing it, but they caught really good fish that way, too. Yeah, I bet. Wow. Yeah. So, but anyway, that, that sense of awesomeness in the sky is really, for me, the muse talking. And when you write poetry about it, like William Wordsworth did, um, you know, the, the muse sings, and it's successful poetry. If it doesn't mm -hmm. sing, well, you got in the way too much of it. Stop being in the way. Did you um, did you go to Hatshepsut's temple? Um, Jezer Jezeru is one uh, word for it. The other is uh, oh, Holy of Holy Places, I think, is the translation of Jezer Jezeru. But I can't remember. I'm blanking the on the... The answer is yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, and it was very impressive. Wasn't and it Sinemut, if you went to his tomb, that has uh, the constellations on the ceiling? Well, they all do. Okay. So yes. and and in fact that carries over into Greek and and uh, Russian Orthodox churches too, and that carries over into French cathedrals. Mm -hmm. So if you go to uh, Saint Chapelle in Paris, uh, the side aisles all have star. They're fleur de lis often because yes. they're French, right? Yeah. But they, they have blue sky with yellow fleur de lis decorating the vaults, mm -hmm. and. Um, we went inside King Tut's tomb, so yeah. it was it was it's closed, but they they were open when we were there, and so we went inside and you, li it was literally, like you walked into this room, with the heavens inside this, in like in a cave, and it's like wow heaven is here, and then it's populated with gods and goddesses and with people living in, mm -hmm. in the hieroglyphics and some amazing, amazing things that uh, uh, friends of mine will would be glad to expound upon because we all saw things that seemed like they were very personal. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just a historical moment. It was um, a lake full of snakes, for example. And serpents, of course, are symbolic of wisdom as well as death. 
these this artist i have several of his pieces in here um there's snakes in all of his work serpents are really really important because a they become tempters for us for a long time in the yes. is, the islamic and christian mm -hmm. traditions but that's in part a response to the the early religions and early ways of thinking that said no snakes are eternal they're they represent eternity and that they're a divine and so you know they eat e if it's eats snake its eating tail, itself yeah um you know or or uh it's it's a healing thing so they you see it in the, the medicine yes and so um that that really figures strongly but among the greeks but it was also in the egyptian temple or in, in the egyptian tomb mm -hmm. and we saw other weird things that that so i I grew up l loving science fiction, so a lot of my writing, and a lot of the reason I went into philosophy was because the best of science fiction asks good questions. And so, a as an example, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? It turned into a bad movie with Donald Sutherland, a really good movie in 1954 mm -hmm. with, uh, I forget who was in it, but uh, these this woman has gone home she finds out that her aunt thinks her 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 husband her uncle uncle ira isn't isn't uncle ira and so she goes she the the woman meets a, a doctor friend of hers and says come meet come see uncle ira i want you to tell me if he's any different than what you knew about uncle ira and he goes to see uncle ira uncle ira is mowing the lawn and um, and this guy says talks to him for a little while, and he says there was nothing different about Uncle Ira. His voice was the same. The way he greeted me was the same. His hair was the same. Every single hair follicle was the same. Everything was identical. But there was something wrong with Uncle Ira. And, of course, what happened with Uncle Ira is these plants have invaded the, you know, the, the earth, and they're slowly but sh they take over and replace you and mm -hmm. so they replace you and there's something different but no one can say what the what's the difference because there's no real difference and so that that's a philosophical question what makes an identity a person identical one minute to the next or if he undergoes a change or if i lost all my memory would i still be me or yeah. is my grandmother in the n nursing home, is she still her? You know, we, we say, oh, she's not herself. Well, wait, what's the difference? Or like, I came in here 10 minutes ago, and since then, I'm sure I've lost some skin. For Fresh, sure. Well, the know? gym is especially. <laughs> yeah, there's skin all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> no. we, I, we did a, a deep dusting uh, over this past, which we did. We dust, yeah. but like. That got really everything. But it's perpetual, and every yes. second is different. So why am I identical to the person who started this sentence? Question mark. That's a good question. So for me, the philosophical question and the science fiction question are feed into one another, feed into each other. Mm -hmm. And so I write about that. So my fiction is really philosophical uh, in terms of you know, asking some questions that you can't do except you have them acted out somehow. How do you get there? 
So um, the question of identity is really interesting. There's a guy named Parfit back in the 1990s who was arguing that um, if, I, if I got into a Star Trek transporter, right? Yes, yes, yes. And I got transported from spot A to spot B on the moon or Mars, what I'd have, I'd have to be dismantled here. And if that's true, does that mean I'm somehow transported over here or am I just digitally copied and then transported over here? And if so, if I'm just a digital copy and this back here was destroyed, that means they killed me and then resurrected me. But wait, in order to be resurrected, don't I have to be the same guy? And if all I am is the data transferred over here, am I the same guy? What makes me the same guy? Is it memories? Is it a sense of continuity? John Locke thought it was a sense of, I have a sense of personal continuity with that. Well, what happens, and so Parfit asks, and other people do too, and I do in some of my science fiction, what happens if you get into a teletransporter so I've got a story I just wrote. It's not a regnant story, but it's one that was published. And unfortunately, the only place I have it in existence now is in German. So it's it's a German story. This guy gets, this is post-apocalyptic, and there's a bunch of people wandering the grounds. You know, so it's dangerous to go outside walking. He's an 80-year-old man, and he used to walk from one castle to another to be with his family and then back again on a footpath, so it's called a footpath. Um, and he, he, they, his kids say, you know, Dad, no one's walking from one place to another anymore. We have to teletransport. It's the only way to do it. And he says, well, I, I, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. It's, what if something happens? And they say, Dad, what could possibly happen? And he says, look, I have a memory of my wife, Alice, and we were in Paris. And if something happened to me, I could lose that. And I don't want to lose that. And so they finally talk him into going. Dad, it's, not, it's simple. Everybody's doing it now. We're just teletransporting from one place to another. No big whoop. And so he finally agrees to do it. And just as he arrives in his second place of business, an alarm goes off, of course. And he goes, oh, crap. And... Sure enough, he gets down and he meets his kids over here in the second place. And they say, Dad, don't panic. It's not that big a deal. But you got, you got replicated. So the digital information that we sent over here got reproduced in another person. And so there's now two of you. And so he thinks, okay, now wait a minute. Which of do, I, do we need to take? No, 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 oh. you're good. You're good. I, I was just, I was just looking at my little input meters over here at the <laughs> bottom. We're totally good. He, so he's worried now. Who, who's, whose memory of Alice in Paris is that? If we both have mm. it, if we both have ident, we're identical in every way. How, how do I know I'm the original, or there is no original? Who owns these memories? And if we both do, who was married to Alice? And so he fi his, the final outcome of the story is he realizes in order to be the one unique guy who is this individual, he has to kill his duplicate. And so he kills him. 
and he kills him in a kind of gruesome way and he's sitting there thinking ah now i'm the i'm me except then he realizes wait if i'm me i would not have killed that guy so in other words he also has undergone a transformation not for the better and a sense of loss because of a loss of identity because he's no longer himself mm. so the que so that's a philosophical question yeah and a literary question and i put it in a bunch of stories because i think it's just really fascinating and it's just fascinating because you know how do you know you're the who walked in this morning you know if you had a big argument with somebody did that change you enough to make you no longer you yeah yeah what does what causes a significant change in people things like uh, i was thinking this uh, uh podcaster historian guy i'm friends with on facebook just mm -hmm. following and he was talking about how 10 years ago his wife passed away mm -hmm. and that he was not the same for 10 years yeah, it, it wow. was a period of 10 years where he was not the same that so he said yeah. things like there was a dark cloud of following him and just nothing was the same and then he goes but things had not been that way for one year hmm. and he's like you know what what causes that change from now he's like is this a prolonged is this going to be life as i know it moving forward like life was you know and did this impact me and change me and and that's yeah. what grief is changed me for this time but now i'm a newer version of so i think the thing that i've thought in relationship to buddhism having studied it for since i was in eighth grade to eighth grade must have been a big year for me um buddhism teaches that all things change and all things pass the buddha's buddha's final words were you know all things pass uh, thrive on strive on and um that meant and he said at one point that also meant for the teachings of buddhism so the dharma also changes if you're looking for the eternal thing that's in you you're never going to find it because you're looking for this kind of concrete block mm -hmm. of stuff and we think of ourselves that way i think of this concrete block called bill aiken that by the way i can reach over and grab pleasure you know, and because of that, I'm happy I've grabbed it for me. But then what I've done is I've changed me in relationship. What, what I am is partly here looking at you, partly here talking into a microphone, partly here being surrounded by your studio and by the outside world and by what's going on in the news. That all, if you took away all of that, and took away my sensations, my senses, what I'm smelling now, what I'm seeing now, what I'm feeling on my skin. And I looked for the I that stays there and will stay there in 10 minutes and will stay there and go to heaven when I die. Maybe it's not like that at all. Maybe what I am is the interconnectedness of the moment. And because of that, beautiful things can happen if I see myself being interconnected to everything in this moment then if something 
horrible happens to a little kid outside in the parking lot. It's happened to me because I'm built up out of that. I'm not a concrete block. I'm like a web of all these wonderful interconnectednesses. And that's what human beings are like. And so they say, instead of Atman, the self, we're, we're not looking for Atman, we're looking for An-Atman, the no-self. And that's where we are. And if we, if we're a concrete block, we feel like we have to grab onto something and then we got to keep it. And the bad thing about getting something that's like, I, I really want a Ferrari, so you go get a Ferrari and you spend all this time hoping you can get your Ferrari, you know, and you sweat yes. and your blood and you, and you work really hard and you change your family and you do everything, working, 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 just trying to get to that Ferrari. And finally you get it. So this concrete block, you think, has caught the Ferrari. But then you start thinking, well, but and now i got to take care of it. And now I hope somebody doesn't steal it. And, oh, my gosh, what if, what if somebody scratches it in the parking lot? And suddenly, all the stuff that hasn't happened, that maybe won't happen, is still hurting you. Yes. It's hurting your state of mind. When in fact, all, the all this time you're trying to grab hold of something concrete so that you, the concrete self, can hold it. But in fact, when you look at a Ferrari, it falls apart. All things must pass. All things. And if the all things must pass, if we saw that, we'd be less likely to see that as, you know, all-consumingly important. And if we saw that that happens to us, we'd know it about us, too. That, to me, is powerful, to realize that what a person is isn't something that can hang on to anything. And in fact, we want to do that with people. We really want to do it with people. We do want to do it with our grandmother when she dies. Say, oh man, you know, I wish she was here. I wish I could hold on to her. And we do. We can't help that. But wishing it so totally as if it could be that way makes us, takes over a part of the way we think and the way we see clearly. And what if we could just see clearly that, wow, I feel bad about my mom or my grandmother dying. Wow, I do miss her, but I'm separate in some ways from that because what I am is all of those em emotions, but underneath that emotion isn't this substance that has to hold it all together. I don't need that. I have wonderful life, and life changes and grows and moves and hurts and is joyful, all of it, and I can embrace all of it. And I think that's what Buddhism teaches me. Frederick Nietzsche does, too. It says, you know, I, I'm a yes-sayer. I want to say yes to life, to amorpha, to love, fate, no matter how bad it is, no matter what's going on, you can love this moment in life. Because, by the way, it's all you got. Yeah, you know, uh, one thing I, I tell people that... Um, yeah, I, I went to, I grew up in a Christian church, went 19 years. Um, but, you know, then I learned a lot about Judaism when I got out, um, just in my historical studies. Mm -hmm. And just, uh, too, seeing that there's really not a whole lot of emphasis on an afterlife, 
really any in Judaism, that's an interesting thought. And it's yeah. kind of like uh, reminded me of what you just said. It's like this this is what we have. Yeah. In fact, this this may be all we have. Yeah. And uh, in trying to, I mean, I think about that often myself. In right. relation of how to live, you know, it's yeah. it, it, maybe this is it. Well, and even if it wasn't, even if it's Nietzsche's wrong, it's not, this is the old, you know, it's just, there's no afterlife. Even if there is an afterlife, what kind of person are we going to be in the afterlife? Are we going to be somebody who tries to grab hold of things and hold on to them? Or can we be somebody who lets things flow through us and be in the moment? And really fully see what the moment is like, and really fully be be thankful for it. And if we're thankful for every moment, then I guess I if I'm going to go to heaven, I want to be heaven in heaven, being thankful for the moment. Maybe we could do that anywhere, and maybe we are supposed to do that. Yeah, maybe there's no supposed to. Maybe why not? It's the best thing. Just to feel thankful for each and every moment and to feel each and every moment for its value. You know, one thing that um, I've been putting together a big piece on the Phyllis House. Mm-hmm. Right? So, mm-hmm. uh, and I just recently listened to a great courses on Voltaire. I want to yeah. give the, uh, the credit to the author. Um, it's really, I had to listen to it uh, twice in a row. It was only, you know, those great courses are usually 30-minute lectures. Right. And it was only um, 12 lectures. So I went through it pretty quick. But uh, Voltaire and the Triumph of the Enlightenment by Alan Charles Coors, K-O-R-S. But he, um, in the chapters of this, he goes into Voltaire and God, Voltaire Mm -hmm. and organized religion, Mm -hmm. Voltaire and the... It goes into a discussion about his trying to reconcile the problem of evil, right. you know, and r- really fascinating um, discussion there by this uh, uh, presenter. But uh, that is an interesting thing also that, you know, you think about that just kind of in, in my mind coming up, it's like uh, if this is the best of all possible worlds type, you know, how is yeah. – why, why, why are, are we grieving for our loved ones and are these things that um, we can't reconcile, like, for example, and, and it's it's really made me feel, uh, but Sunday morning I was in here working and I got a text message from one of the students here that mm-hmm. this jiu-jitsu eight-time world champion black belt mm-hmm. was murdered in Brazil. Yeah. I mean, I stood yeah. next to this guy and ate some acai at Worlds. Like, I've been around him. Yeah. I never talked to him, but he just was out and s- somebody just shot him and it just you know it, it was just a major loss of that community of which i'm a part of and yeah. watched his footage and showed it to, showed it some two weeks ago to one of my students i was like you know watch what he's doing you know yeah. and uh but just uh you know you think about that and it was just like it wasn't so much a random act. Randomness is what really makes me get into thinking about this. It wasn't so much a random act of violence, but just one of those things that happens. And when you are into training martial arts for something like self-defense, and he's a sport guy, but still, um, then something like that happens. Yeah, so the problem of evil is has uh, always been an interesting one to me because, of course, everybody faces it 
And Job in the Bible faces it. Job's friends in the Bible come along and say, look, you must have done something wrong to have all this bad stuff happen to you. And the truth of the Job text is, no, he didn't do anything wrong. He's, he's presented as a perfect man, mm-hmm. Job is. And so why did he have these bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? There's a book uh, by Rabbi Kushner who says, you know, I had a little, I had a son who um, had progeria. I think that's what it, what it's called. Progeria is a rapid aging thing. So that by the time he was 13, he was roughly the equivalent of a body of a 65, 70 yeah, year old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he died. And I shook my fist at God. And I said, why, why? And the, the, the people who think the philosophy, the problem of evil is one that asks against a, all good God who's all perfect and who would do ev- whatever he could. And of course he could, he or she could, you know, could have avoided that. Um, raise that as an objection to God. But Rabbi Kushner says, you know what? It didn't ask me, does God exist? It, it asked me, what's my relationship with this deity? And can I shake my fist at him? And can I curse God? And sure enough, I mean, it's a relationship. So he, he gives a different kind of answer for that. But I, I'm, I'm very struck by, well, Frederick Nietzsche. My understanding of Nietzsche is he argues that in the height of tragedy, the greatest tragedy is when we're invited to really embrace and say yes to life. Because at that moment, we have the worst thing that could possibly have happened, the worst thing. And my emotions are still there. I'm not, they're not going to go away. But what I can do is understand them in the context of just being me and being thankful for life itself. And, and so he, he tries this hypothesis. Some people think it's just a thought experiment. Other people, like Martin Heidegger, think it's really what he thinks. That it, given an infinite, the claim is given, an, given a finite, given an infinite amount of time, and a finite am- amount of matter. The m- stuff in the universe is just atoms for, for the, the claim. And over an infinite amount of times, those atoms will configure in a particular way. This way. Oh, by the way, where we're sitting here. And then another infinity of time down along the way, we'll get the same exact configuration. Because given an infinite amount of time, possible infinite combinations, it'll recur. This moment actually will recur. And so the claim is, if you have an eternal recurrence with something that recurs again and again and again and again, even if it's totally random, it's not totally random, because at the far end of infinity, we got it again, then every moment, every moment, eternally recurs and if that's accurate he argues or he tries us out imagine a demon coming up to you and saying hey Brian 
Um, do you choose this moment or not? Do you run away in horror because you're not living it the way you want to? You're not really here. Or do you embrace it and say, yeah, I choose them all. Every one of them, even the ones that hurt. And to me, that's, that's life affirmation. If you could do that all the way to heaven, and if there is a heaven or not, it doesn't matter because what you've got, well, it does matter. But where you are is where you are. And you can either affirm it or try to get away from it. But getting away from it, where are you going to go? Being negative and resenting it is where it really starts to weigh you down. It calls it the spirit of gravity. You get weighed down by resentment and by jealousy and anger and upsetness. We can't help the emotions, but we can see it. And maybe you can see it as a gift. I guess I'd read that. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that just popped up uh, in our discussions here and kind of back on the topic before this one, uh, but consciousness you know is it um you know maybe being streamed from elsewhere uh in a sense right like where uh you know uh you were talking about your body uh, dr bush used to always say is this just a bloody hunk of meat y you know right. uh it, with right. the mind body problem right but um but then too within like our body versus consciousness and, and just what you and i have going on right now we're talking about these is uh, Dr. Bush would also say things are getting kind of heady in here. <laughs> he would say that all the time, but but yeah. but they really are. Right you know, these are these are um, very interesting questions. And that what I love about philosophy is it, it is a thought exercise. It's the ultimate thought exercise for me, yeah. and it crosses over into everything. And you know, been thinking about Carl Jung and mm -hmm. archetypes earlier, mm -hmm. Nietzsche uh, mm -hmm. also. Uh, everyone I know in psychology is super into Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, that but this is, you know, the, the origin of our thoughts. Like we were talking about muses earlier, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. in, in that being potentially, po is it possible separate from our body? And then our body dies, our consciousness, and maybe from its point of origin is still exists, maybe it doesn't. And, and that's really, I guess, the ultimate debate on the afterlife. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm not sure a lot of that matters. So the, I think one of the real questions is how much does it matter? Uh, and so I, I have, I know people who think that we're being, our consciousness is being streamed in from the Pleiades, an insect population there. And no, I mean, they really think it. I've got like six or seven books on that topic. Wow. Six or seven different people. So those are people you want to put on your your show, because yes. <laughs> they're fascinating. And if you go on TikTok, you'll see them. Some of those guys are saying, "Look, I heard from, you know, the praying mantis out in the Pleiades," and that's not to make fun of it. That's really what they think. And so, but I, I just wonder, you know, the hardcore philosopher type of the 20th century would say, "Does that make a difference to your life?" Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it gives you a different perspective on things. That's interesting. It's, I guess it's just interesting. But with Voltaire, I guess, so the thing about Candide by Voltaire is that at the end of the book and at the end of his life, 
he said, I, I'm just going to go tend my garden. And, you know, he was out there solving all the problem of evil and, you know, all these other things and trying to deal with, you know, the really big questions. And the, and the Buddha says this too. The Buddha says, look, uh, suppose you come to me and you say, I'm suffering. It's like an arrow in my gut. Well, I could then respond to you like a philosopher and say, well, the, the, the velocity of your arrow was probably this, and it was following the aerodynamic uh, principle of, you know, and so we could do an analysis of why there's an arrow in your gut, or we could just pull the arrow out. And if pull the arrow out means maybe we could stop thinking and just start being. And in that moment when we're really being, maybe that's what all the thinking is about. How do we mm. get? How do we get to just being now? And see, in the martial arts, big part of the martial arts, to just be fully present. For sure, you know, uh, I tell this to my students, and I remark on it in my training over the last sixteen years. But you know, you take something like boxing or kickboxing, or just MMA, if there's a striking component, right? Even karate, point sparring, any of that. There is this idea that, okay, I'm going to do this combination, jab, cross, hook. You know, and it, people think, okay, yeah, all right, I'm going to do jab, cross, hook. And they do it, and it doesn't work. And they're like, well, why didn't it work? And it, it there is just something to uh, kind of forcing it. You know, there is there is a uh, sort of a no-mind aspect mm -hmm. to you just you, – you do the training so – when the moment arises, you don't have to think about jab cross hook, right. and that that thinking about it takes perhaps that one millisecond that it would have worked away, and it strips it away. Yes, so it is just that I think the highest form. If you look at some of the greatest ever, mm -hmm. um, they uh, you know um, are in sort of a flow state with that, and they are not. The work has been done, so they don't have to do the, the thought. They're not appropriating mental energy. So I believe that flow state makes what little... So I'm not... So my fiction, if I can be in a flow state with the writing, then I feel like I've gotten there. Mm -hmm. And if I can think in a flow <laughs> state, I can, we can think about philosophy, but get so wrapped up in the minutiae that we fail to see how it can be life-forming and life-transforming. And I think that's where, well, Nietzsche's a good example of someone who was sort of in a flow state, but he carries it up to a real high level. And you can flow state through thinking. So you can have no mind in mind, if that makes sense. It, it does. It, it um I've been using this uh, kind of a uh, interesting metaphor. Uh, so, as a as a grown adult, thirty something year old man, I started mm -hmm. skateboarding. I've oh got yeah. my two skateboards up here. Yeah. And I'm a member of that masterclass website. Uh -huh. And Tony Hawk, he has a skateboarding masterclass. Yeah. Welcome to cool. 2022. Yeah, man. Right, like, so I've watched uh, several. Uh, I haven't seen the whole thing. I watched several. The first several parts several times uh -huh. you know, but you know I'm, I'm looking at him doing basics getting on and off the board yeah 
just kicking and making the board go. And then putting his foot from kicking back onto the board, and then you you turn your other foot as you as you do that, right? And I I can see that he does not think about that, but I do. Yeah. I do. And it keeps so much you from doing it. I, well, I am able to achieve it, but it is just so. It, it, I'm skating with two or three friends right now, and I see them turning their feet, and they don't think about it either. Right. And uh, I'm I'm like trying to uh, achieve this perfect way to stand on the board. And it really, the only time it's perfect is when it's not actually perfect, yeah. and I'm just on the board. So That's um, when I'm riding around the best. So I uh, lived in San Francisco for a while when I finished my, or when I got one of my master's degrees in philosophy, and before I came back to this area, and uh, played in a band. So it was, we had, we had a, a band, a top 40 band kind of thing, uh, in San Francisco, and I was the lead singer, wow. Um, but I, I also occasionally played rhythm guitar. Okay. But I was a, I'm a horrible guitarist. Not because I can't play pretty good rhythm. I can do that, um, but because I'm all. I don't know how to stop thinking. But if you go watch Carlos Santana play, he's not thinking anything. He's mm-hmm. feeling it, and he's one with it, and it's a flow state. He's just there and the best guitarists know exactly where the notes are what to do but they make them sing and the only way you can make them sing is to get the music or the flow state in or just to be fully here and affirm it I mean it's all the same it's like being here now have you ever heard of a guy uh, named Colonel Bruce Hampton He's, um, he passed away at the age of 70 playing at his birthday party, actually. Mm. But um, he's been like, the, was this mentor to all of these bands. I really appreciate Widespread Panic. It's like my wife and I's favorite uh-huh. band. Yeah, but he was in a band with the now guitar player of Widespread Panic mm-hmm. called the Aquarium Rescue Unit. Okay. And uh, the guy that now plays with the current lineup of, you know, Bob Weir still in the you know from the Grateful Dead still mm-hmm. plays. Um, O'Till Burbage plays bass with that group, um, Dead and Company. Well, he was in that band. But this Colonel Bruce Hamp, he's a mentor for all these people. Uh, even this uh, younger guy's in his early twenties named Taz. He was playing too. And he was thirteen at the time or something when yeah. Colonel Bruce passed away. Yeah. But passed away doing what he loved. Yeah, uh, do it. John Popper from. Um, what is that band? Uh, Blues Traveler was playing a harmonica solo when he died. Wow. Trey Anastasio from Fish, Susan Tedeschi, Derek Trucks, all widespread. It, it was a, just an ensemble of musicians playing. Yeah. But he had this philosophy. He's like, yeah, musical theory, it's great. Like, learn it. Um, mm-hmm. But just play the note. And if it sucks, make it suck. Yeah. Like, yeah. Th- like, with feeling. With <laughs> and if you do that, uh, and my guitar teacher told me a joke one time. He's like, play one note, and, and it doesn't sound right. Play it again. Still doesn't sound right. Play it a third time. Now you're doing jazz. Play it continuously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but but yeah. he's just like, you know, there's what's what what does it mean to suck? Yeah. You know, and he, he would kind of talk about, uh, and it inspired all of these other people, this philosophy of, of how to write and play music and, and yeah. write original content. Right. And, and you hear all of these people talking about that influence, and then you hear him kind of providing commentary in past. Uh, and it's just really interesting, just like, hey, put yourself out there. Like, be vulnerable. 
it may be terrible. Yeah. And, and you may look back in 20 years and you've refined it and it's awesome, but it was bad then, you know. It's you know, I, I saw the Grateful Dead in San Francisco when I was out there, and they, there, it was it was me and about 9 million bikers, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, was, it was probably an audience. <laughs> but it's like um, they started playing, and I think they were, must have been a little on the high side at the, at the time because they, they'd come in with – there are a lot of uh, faulty notes to begin with, but then the faulty notes became part of the whole texture, and it was shamanic. It was like mm-hmm. they just took, they hypnotized everybody. It's like you moved into this flow of this really powerful stuff. It was the best live concert. I've, I've seen a lot of concerts. It was the best live concert I've ever what seen. What year was this that you had seen? I think it must have been 1984, Wow, something like that. Okay, that so would have been a great. Brent, uh, Brent Medlin would have been the uh, keyboard player at that time. Um, he was their last uh, keyboard player, I believe, before um, Jerry passed away. I think Jerry had a, a a kind of notion that he was a sort of shaman too, that he could affect, make magic. He could or make the muse sing right there in front of everybody and with everybody. And all he had to do is, and he's, you know, he's kind of chubby guy, right? <laughs> And he had he never really looked very imposing, but when he got up and played, he could just, you know, you'd like get sucked into it and become part of the whole environment. And uh, the only thing I can compare it to is uh, is uh, Allen Ginsberg, the poet, who I I worked at Hendrix. After I graduated from Hendrix and then came back from California and worked there for a year or two, and we invited Allen Ginsberg to to read. And his poem, Howl, is this long, shamanic, rhythmic piece. And he plays a, a Indian keyboard, you know, one of those portable mm-hmm. keyboards, and, and sometimes a, a bongo drum or something to go with it, you know, very beatnik, right? And it, it was just like a mantra, this poem. And the mantra literally just made everybody whoa into this space where we were open and listening and maybe that's full of awe again you know yeah okay so you've you've had some incredible experiences but yeah um yeah it's cool yeah and too i just keep sitting here thinking um okay so one thing we will talk about and we can just uh side, sidebar into that was so i graduated high school with your oldest son ben uh-huh. is the oldest i believe then okay. when i was a senior Dan Stahl, he was the drama teacher mm-hmm. there at Hartsville, he's now at Russellville, but um, I was his TA, as a student assistant type person for yeah. one period, and that was the period that the junior high uh, people in ninth grade, they, they would come up and they could take drama one first period. And uh, so I was, the, I was in, Hannah was in that class, yeah. right? And I think, is Dylan is younger than Hannah? No, they're twins. Oh, they're twins. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. I think, he, yeah, she's younger by about 15, 20 minutes or an hour. Maybe. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, so interesting. I, yeah. I may have known that. I may not have. But um, two different people you would never know. He's like a brick. You know, he's kind of a thick. He's not fat. He's good looking, but he's kind of thick. And she's kind of skinny and spry. And an amazing actress. An amazing actress. And and he's an artist. And he is an, an incredible Whoa. artist. I, I have, um, 
shown many people his Instagram. Yeah. Just uh, really blows me away uh, what I he is able to do. I think he has three million followers on TikTok. <sighs> so, wow. yeah, and, you know, he's made a living over the past three years. He pretty much, he did learn some drawing from Tammy Harrington here. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Don uh, was the art professor at the University of the Ozarks. Uh, but what he, he didn't really learn his the way he does his art until he got off on his own and started experimenting. He literally developed his own way of doing photorealism. And then when people on TikTok and places like that said, these are photographs, you're, you're, you're just uh, faking it. He, you know, he started uh, going on TikTok and on uh, Twitch mm -hmm. and doing, uh, you know, the whole drawing in front of people so that they would know what he did. Yeah. And, the stuff he does has put him in the international scene of, of photorealism. He's well-known all over the world. What, what is uh, your website? WilliamAiken.com? Yeah, so it's W-I-L-L-I-A-M, middle initial R. So W-I-L-L-I-A-M-R-E-A-K-I-N.com. Uh, okay. He, I saw some of his artwork on your website. Oh, uh, great. Just, just yeah. like browsing around, kind of uh, just reading about y your works. And um, yeah. have, have saw, I saw this one picture that he did of Hannah. Yeah. Uh, and I think she's like maybe like has her hand on her face or something. But it, it literally blows me away. Yeah, I hope everybody will go see Dylan Aiken, D-Y-L-A-N-E-A-K-I-N on TikTok or Twitch or any of those places. Because it's really... It's mind-blowing. Yes. Has he done any podcasts or anything like that? Uh, well, he does a... I don't know if he's doing podcasts, but he does, you know, a, he does regular TikTok things mm -hmm. where he's literally just there for an hour or two drawing. Yeah. And he talks it through. Uh, and, and I think he's moved some of that to Twitch. So... If, if you go on Twitch looking for it. There's a big audience on Twitch. Uh, I haven't yeah. streamed to Twitch, but this little pad I have over here, that's one of the, uh, you can set it up to do, yeah. it'll just be a push of a button. Well, he's just astonishing. And then, and he sells prints. Um, and now he's, his uh, originals are, are really worth a lot. So he's li making a living, significant living. Um, just selling the originals, but then he sells prints as well. Yeah. Uh, but only, you know, signed, signed prints for just a time, and they they literally went from ten or fifteen bucks, you know, to, well, I can't say how much, a lot. Yeah. So they're they're pricey and they're valuable, and people are collecting them all over the world. That's amazing. I'm I'm really proud of them, and I'm proud of Hannah too. She's a, a in a New York, right? Theater actress. They're both in New York. Wow. And uh, she's she had a dream, which was to be in theater, and a lot of her friends did too. And they slowly but surely either went off and did um, things that re were related to mm -hmm. theater. Uh, a few of them kept going and did some magnificent theater work, a couple of them especially. Uh, and then Hannah's, you know, made a living in professional theater since she graduated from yeah. OCE. And she was recently uh, in the Pirates of Penzance in a in oh, wow. a, a Gilbert and Sullivan company out of New York that's been there since 1972. They did a, a rendition of that at Tech when I was going, and Dr. Dykema was in it. 
Yeah, there you go. I want to say pirate, either that or I'm conflating that with we did it at Clarksville because I was in theater at Clarksville. Yeah. But um, I've seen that performance, um, but I've seen three what? or four pirate performances. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites, and, and uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, um, this company is on the road this next year, and I can't really say anything more about it. Yeah. Te- technically can't say anything more about it. Except that I th- I'm pretty sure they're going to have a, a Fayetteville, one Fayetteville show. Yeah, good. So, yeah, yeah. And and she's also a filmmaker. So if anybody gets an opportunity, she's she's uh, on, oh, what's the name of the, well, I can't remember the name of the site. But she does, um, she's got a film-based set of films. She's gone through the history of filmmaking. And she and I have watched and I bought a whole bunch of them, films from the 1910s to, to today, on, and watched how they made their films. And then she takes the, the poetry of a woman named Sarah Teasdale, and she's got 99 poems, very, very short, but she sets them to, to a film style, like film noir, or you know 60s style, or German expressionism, and and does the set and the costume and the acting, and then sometimes takes on other people to do the acting, uh, and and does these little films. And so, gosh, I can't remember the name of the website. I'll, I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. And and too, just side side. Uh, if Dylan if and Hannah either one are listening, which I imagine they will listen to this, I would love to be, to talk with each of them about their journeys. And I'm I've had sure Ben on. Ben has come on at least twice. He's yeah. done one in the studio, and he did one at my house. Yeah. Um, so, it, and again, we graduated together, and he is an amazing musician. Well, talk about somebody who lives his music. You know, he's he's working on a musical, and he he uh, works at a nursing home, yes. a residence center, where he's the activities director, one of the co-directors, mm-hmm. and they do music. Uh, almost continuously yes. as far as I can tell. And the one thing he's said over and over again is that sometimes you can have somebody who's really out of it, who doesn't remember their own children, who's sitting there, doesn't say or do anything. You play a song that they know, they start singing, they start. They might dance, They, their whole mind opens back up. So memory, memory and music, well, they... <laughs> They're both related to the muses, you mm-hmm. know, and music uh, is something that opens a lot of us. We all go back and and remember. And even when we forget, you know, e- even if it's remembering the Oscar Mayer Wiener song or something, you know, it's still up here. Yeah. Some of it we can't get rid of. And, you know, the truth is a lot of stuff we don't want to because it's the most important part of us. Like your story yeah. uh, in German. Yeah. We're talking about. yeah, thank you. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but yeah, that's uh, Ben is uh, he talked about that on the podcast, and uh, you know, he had worked um, for a time also. Uh, my aunt Joy Wilson uh-huh. is the CEO yeah, of Foyster sure. Davis, and uh, for whom I worked when I first came to town. Oh, and, okay, and, and she said, You know, we're gonna develop a office of volunteerism out there. Would you come do it? So I did, and I did a couple of things, and I I take personal responsibility for having 
turn, I didn't do a whole heck of a lot, but uh, did turn a report in that uh, argued that Johnson County should be a volunteer community. And we're a volunteer community now, according to the sign, 10 years after we did the first time and we, we got it. So I, we had a little sign, volunteer community, uh, in part because of joy and, uh, and uh, telling me to go do this or you know, giving me some things to do as a volunteer. Yeah, she is so great. And yeah. the things that she's done over time, I just remember it from when I was a kid yeah. to what they're doing now um, yeah. is truly amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then he had talked, um, I talked with him just about how he'd worked with music with different groups. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. just also, um, like, right around, uh, I think we talked before and then after the pandemic, Ben and I. Mm -hmm. And he was recording some amazing music. Uh, yeah. It was just like literally one of the songs he made. I was listening to all the time. Yeah. And um, I talked with him about his music a little bit, but he's always been uh, had an amazing vocal talent and an amazing just ability to, to pick up an instrument. Yeah, and he's playing with a group now too. Oh, nice. I don't know the name of the group. So yeah, he's just started. He's playing the bass. Okay. Wow. Pick, nice. Picked it up and learned it. Uh, I, I could see that. Some of my best player, best bass players, um, walked in and we showed them what a bass was and they took off. You know, so I've <laughs> I've seen it happen. And he's really he. So Ben is the only person I know who could listen to Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, sit down at a piano and play it by ear. Wow. He can do that, and he does that. Not as much now, but I mean, he can read the music, but but he can he can literally hear something and play it, pick it out, mm -hmm. and that's incredible. If you think about Toccata and Fugue in D minor, you know, you just sit down and play it. Wow, that's wow. I don't know how it's almost like, well, that's a muse or an angel maybe, you know, it's just something that just overcomes you in that way. Yeah, and he's always been able. Proud of him very much. Well, and uh, you know, just sitting here talking with like, why? I wonder. I, I could definitely see some influence. I, I mean, I, I don't know <laughs> if there are links there, I, yeah. but you know, if you were my dad, I would probably be into something. <laughs> I, I talk to Core all the time. Well, we obviously been somebody was, and obviously you're here doing your <laughs> exactly. stuff. Exactly. <laughs> but um, that you know, I uh, my wife and I have been trying to um, get pregnant for almost three years. Mm -hmm. And um, we are to this place uh, in that where w she's had a couple of procedures done really mm -hmm. highly uh, likely uh, that it might happen this week. Keep and, it fingers might, crossed. and it might be twins. Cool. It, it, uh, I, was I was thinking that earlier. Keep two fingers crossed. But <laughs> which it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I, it'll be fine. I'll just be happy uh, when it happens. I am not going to complain about having my twins. Although if people say it's the same amount of work. You can tell them to go shop. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. It's, it's a little more work, but, man, it's great. But, you know, just uh, here's a question for you. So, like, she and I talk about this. Like, obviously, I would like my kids to do the stuff that your kids do, yeah. theater and band and choir yeah. and, and just the arts and humanities. But that's kind of a interesting concept of, about wanting something for someone else uh, yeah. you know and, and two 
it's like, yeah, I could see like, oh man, Bill's into lots of awesome stuff that I like. Oh, well, it makes sense why Ben's into some, you know, he was a singer yeah. in a band when I was in high school. And yeah. Yeah, I could see some parallels, but also I could see where you don't want to force anything no. on anyone. And and how did how did it turn out? How, how did it turn out that that way? What we, did you have a parenting style that you know? No, I I although some of my favorite people think that I was too lax for a lot of things. So, you know, I think you have to take it easy and it's that you try to grab and possess it then you've just destroyed it mm-hmm. so you can't grab and possess anybody especially if you're yeah. you know a child and you can't grab and possess what they're gonna be or what you imagine that they would be because it almost inevitably means they'll be the opposite yeah you know so you, I, don't, I think you just have to s- to strive and thrive on all things must pass mm-hmm. you know really and be okay if they don't want to be an actor or if they don't want to be you know or, or you know if they none of them wanted to be artists then they all wanted to be in the marines i've got a niece who's a marine you know i i guess i would not have encouraged my kids to be thinking that but if they said we'd like to be marines too then that would be part of who we all were. Yeah. And so the I think I think we're afraid, we adults are afraid to change. For sure. And so the more afraid we are of that, the harder we think we can hold on to something, but you can't hold on to anything. And if you, the harder you so the harder you try, the harder you squeeze, the more likely you just kill that thing. You know? So, letting it be. So, let it be is the, you know, the Beatles thing. But it's also, uh, Martin Heidegger says it, Nietzsche says it, the Buddhists say it. Let it be. Just, just chill. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, stand in awe and sin not. That sounds pretty good. Whatever sin means, it can mean, you know, stifling other people. Yeah. But it can also mean... Yeah, you got to teach etiquette here and there, and you've got to be, you know, model that kind of stuff, I guess. And I'm not a good model. I just things I've done. Well, I was a, I was in a rock band in San Francisco. Come on. You've seen the Grateful Dead before. <laughs> yeah, once you've seen the Grateful <laughs> Dead, you know you're gone. Um, oh. But you know that that too was more of a to go not not just go with the flow, whatever happens. But go with the flow being there fully and completely. And man, if you can do that, that's that's all the Buddhists have to say. That's all you need. Do you think that, uh, I mean, obviously you've had a, 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 a almost you know, a lifetime to develop these ideas you have today, right now. But um, was there a period of your life where, I mean, how long have you been sort of at this place? Was Third grade. <laughs> Even better, <laughs> but no, that really. yeah no that's I mean yeah. and that's you know because that's interesting. I I was probably a little less confident about speaking such things, but you know I remember I think in eighth or ninth grade I was over at what was the equivalent of Hastings and picked up a a, a book called the Upanishads and I read most of it sitting there. And I said, 
this is stuff I've been thinking all along. So I think people have ears tuned for certain kinds of things already, and mm -hmm. we're born that way. And I don't think that means we don't change. And I'm I'm very happy to change because I. But maybe recognizing that change is continuous is how do you change out of that? Well, I don't want to change out of that. <laughs> So there's a, a kind of process of just going with the flow, both in terms of what you believe and think and in terms of what you hear and, and just learning to listen to other people. And that listening process, I guess, was helped by, I, I met some, when I came back and worked at Hendrix for a while, um, I worked with a theologian there, Christian theologian, who nevertheless had gone to Japan and uh, learned Buddhism. He had gone there to teach a Buddhist Zen Roshi English. And in the process, he himself got certified as having a Satori experience, uh, you know, living there with the Zen master. And he essentially sees himself as a Buddhist Christian. And I met a whole community of people yeah, like that's, that. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, and that community um, included uh, a group of people that I helped pull together in Berkeley, California, uh, for people who were counted themselves as Christian liberation theologians, Christian on, on the social transformation side of things, and who nevertheless did that in dialogue with Buddhism. And so there's a whole group of people like that. And to me, what that, what that did was emphasize the compassion part that's very, very important to Buddhism. Buddhism, you wake up, and so your knowledge is increased. But what that means is your compassion is increased simultaneously. It's two sides to the same coin. And I guess these, these Christian theologians that I was working with... Um, we're, we're learning how deeply important that was to engage with other people in love. And they called it love. So I think that's really, really important. I don't know how we got on to, how I got on to talking about that group, except that it's both all the stuff we've been talking about simultaneous with, you know, care for the other. And I guess if we're interconnected, if we're not like, block concrete blocks that are separate that means in this moment we're we're connected we're breathing the same air sucking in the same viruses whatever we happen to be doing but we're also hearing each other's voices and we're so we're impacted by that and if that's true everything everything around me impacts makes up who i am and if that's true the people that are suffering the dogs that are down at the at the you know, the dog mill down here and somebody's mis mis abusing them, their suffering impacts me. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you're a vegetarian or not, suffering of animals makes us feel, makes us, we may not even feel it, but makes us, diminishes us. What diminishes the lives of others diminishes us. And so that's the root of compassion. So both awakenedness and compassion are important, both in terms of being
same with people on the street or being people you know in the political realm but also raising a kid mm-hmm. you don't start with that and well it's a good place to start here and here you just realize wow I, I wouldn't be anything like I am now without my kids that and it's not just the kids it's everybody mm-hmm. so when did you start riding in this whole journey so in third grade <laughs> I told you <laughs> that's where we that's how we got off on yes. all that other stuff uh, in third grade um, my teacher had a little SRA kind of book SRA was a reading program for for kids uh, and this book was had writing prompts and so there was a writing prompt um, in, a, in a notebook um, that said imagine the squirrel he jumps into a truck from a tree and then write a story and so I wrote a little story and I thought that was pretty cool and then from that moment on I was doing some kind of writing in mm-hmm. eighth grade I started reading science fiction with with these philosophical implications like Uncle Ira you know what's wrong with Uncle Ira all that stuff uh, and I read uh, they had pulp, what they called pulp magazines. Mm-hmm. Pulp magazines were digest magazines that had really great science fiction, Arthur C. Clarke and people like that writing in them, and, but had huge circulation. So they were cheap, and they were newspaper print, but you know some of them had two or 300,000 people reading circulation. Uh, and I wanted to be an analog, so I wrote a story, and I sent it to analog in eighth grade. And they said, we want to encourage you because this is really, you know, a very interesting thing. But we are, you're obviously young. And so, in other words, you're rejected. But ever since that rejection, I said, I'm going to be someday. I'm going to be in a pulp magazine. And it's going to be on a 10-cent table. And somebody's going to pay 10 cents to get this used copy of my story. And what that really means is I want to produce these artifacts that stay. You know, and so sure enough, anal- analog is one of the big science fiction, hardcore. You got to know your science kind of thing. So I am not that, um, but I tried it there, and then uh, five or six years ago, I had a, a story published in analog. So I finally made it. It took me forty years to get there, but I did. Um, and so then I started writing regularly, and. In the 1990s, I started writing sort of satirical stories with a lot of heart and use, I hope, um, called in a little place I invented called Red Gunk, Mississippi. And Red Gunk, Mississippi, so I had been, I was a single dad. I lived in a mobile home waiting to build my house on my property, um, surrounded by weeds, mostly. And I started writing about not characters that I had met, but characters who lived out in the country who nevertheless were full of, just had little magical, weird science fiction things happen to them. Science fiction, fantasy, and sometimes horror, and sometimes just literary things. And I was, and I have a master, the equivalent of a master's in literature, two master's degrees in philosophy and a PhD in philosophy. So too many, too many degrees. But the literature was helpful because I read James Joyce and some of the really big guns. And I was just enthralled by how 
writing and make writing itself the sound of the language and writing outside the box not just storytelling but singing like poetry can really open people's minds and can open my mind so I started writing these red gunk tales which are are making fun of country folk which I was by then and at the same time not making fun of them but really cherishing them and letting them ha be in weird settings like one guy named boy howdy uh, gets taken off by a UFO gets yanked out of the you know off the earth um, and they realize he's homesick and they get the aliens get sick of him because he's so homesick so they throw him back onto earth but in the process they duplicate him so it's another duplicating story so boy howdy meets boy howdy's self uh, simultaneously and they're in the same mobile home out in the same weeds uh, but they now have to deal with each other and what they have to what they do in the well I hope somebody will come read that story because it's really spoiler alert it's no spoilers yeah it, it, the question is how do I how do I live with myself <laughs> right yeah okay uh, and one of my first stories that got big published so it got all these got published in pub in pulp magazines or some of the other science fiction magazines uh, in the, at the um, late 1990s there was a magazine called realms of fantasy which uh, uh, included all the great fantasy writers all of them um, and um, I, I ended up in seven issues before that magazine kind of folded they folded in part because it was a print magazine and they had these beautiful paintings so I loved the I loved the paintings I loved seeing the stories there 20,000 30,000 people easily read each story uh, and they won a bunch of awards so um, I really hit the publishing pretty pretty hard and pretty well uh, for at least the time realms of fantasy was around uh, and then I got a call from a guy up in Connecticut, I think. Yeah, from, no, Vermont, um, from a, a publisher called Invisible Cities Press. And they put out a first collection of these stories that had been published. Um, there were only about a fifth of them. How many, uh, how many stories are in that one there? Uh, I don't know, but this is a fifth of the stories. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten, eleven, twelve. Okay. Um, so there's, and all of these were published, well published for science fiction fantasy. Uh, and they were all published in fantasy and science fiction magazines, which was peculiar to me because usually the genres are very, they're very rule governed. You, you, if you're science fiction, you write science fiction and what it means. But this was all weirdly literary too. So I was always making fun of people like James Joyce or William Faulkner I love. I love both of those guys. Um, but I write what a critic said was maximalism, which means I just write, 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 write everything. And so it's a stream of consciousness kind of thing too. Um, actually, so the editor of Realms of Fantasy says it's sort of like Thomas Wolfe on acid or James Joyce on moonshine. <laughs> that, that, that's a great comparison. Yeah, 
And, you know, it, it really reads like that, but when you get through it, you go, whoa, how did I get here? One guy wrote, a, a reviewer wrote, he, it didn't just change my mind, it changed my soul. And I don't do that, but some things so I felt like, well, maybe the muse does talk. Yeah. Uh, so this, is, so you're publishing these. You said throughout the late '90s. When did this first? Uh, come this out? came out in 2001. Okay. This particular, this one, and then uh, I got another call from an LGBTQ press uh, called Laith Press, uh, and he he pretty much said, well, I, I know you're a straight guy and you're writing stuff that I don't usually publish, but we really want to publish your Redgunk stories. So um, he, I said, well, you know, if, if you publish that, I, I want it in hardback, and I want a really, really nice book, a nice book, and um, I want it to include everything I ever wrote in Redgunk for 30 years. And he said, okay. And, and he had it illustrated on the cover, which I thought it's beautiful yeah and then he i said you know what another guess what i want another thing and i said well what i want is my son dylan to draw a couple things just a couple things so he drew a map oh, kind of wow. like J.R. tolkien yeah. right and then at the very end he included a portrait of me Someplace back here in the in the uh, notes about the album. Let's see. I don't even know where it is. I don't see it. Someplace back it, here. It, I think that's probably the same one I saw on your website. Yeah, it's on the website. So they produced this beautiful book, and it's thirty nine dollars on the website, but sale thirty three dollars. <laughs> you know. Is it just the press? Publishing. Or, uh, their press is also on your website as well? Yeah. So W I L L I A M R E A K I N, one word, dot com. Right. Yeah. And so there's connection to that. Uh, and there's connect. There's a free story that's sitting there. Lawnmower Mo is the first story ever published uh, by Realms of Fantasy, and it's in both of these books. And I also put it on for free on the website. I'm about to put up. Hannah did an an oral. Yes, uh, yeah, you were you were mentioning that, um, which I love audiobooks. I'm That's my really favorite mode. I'm excited about that, and uh, now I'm going to go back to Lathe Press and say, I know you did this book exactly like I want, but now we need an oral version. So I'm hoping they'll do at least some of the stories, maybe hire Hannah to to do the oh, narration. Oh, she'd do great. Yeah, uh, so far sure. this one that she's just done, she's. She's choosing her favorites, and also a lot of them are narrated by, by men. So, she really is kind of probably not be able to do that, but some yeah. of them she'll do. I think, yeah, that'll I be that'll be exciting and awesome for her to be involved too. Yeah. Um. So outside of um, Red Gunk, though, uh -huh. you have. Um, I saw some other works. You had uh, I think half a dozen or so on your website. So, um. I did some early work in nonfiction, so I've I've uh, done literary essays on William Blake and Percy Bysshe Shelley. I I did some collecting of 
different kinds of theology with a friend of mine from Hendrix. Uh, so we did a collection of women writing about their religious traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, uh, but from a feminist perspective. And then I did a collection of from the World Council of Churches of Christian theologians talking about how theology can impact ecology. And so I, I helped edit those books. Okay, okay. And then I've done a whole mess of poetry and a whole bigger mess, literally a mess maybe, of science fiction, fantasy, and literary works that, short stories, that appeared in different magazines. But they're, it's kind of hard to collect a, collect something that's not, that aren't really connected. Mm -hmm. um, so the collection Regnant is really what I've spent most of my time on. Um, but I'm also writing three or four things. I'm working with a friend of mine I mentioned to you off the air earlier, um, who used to work for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. If you drive toward Russellville, you look up and see a billboard that has Otto the Otter advertising uh, the, the state parks mm -hmm. and not to litter. And Otto the Otter is his creation. Okay. Uh, and so he's all over the place. And uh, I just recently moved him to Tucson. So he's now, he's one of the fellows I mentioned to you living in Arizona. But he used to work for Twilight Zone uh, magazine. Yeah. And, or he did some work that way. He helped develop some of the Hellraiser characters um and wow. so he's a he's a and he's a he also is an award-winning fiction writer uh, and been in some of the magazines fantasy and science fiction for example that i've been in and he was the first to he wrote a full page review of red gun tales when the first one book came out in 2009 uh, and so that's how i got to know him and he and i are writing a set of books that are unpublished um, that uh, are reminiscent of Raymond Chandler and the film noir kind of, you know, Philip Marlowe mm -hmm. detective series. We're doing that, setting it in a fantasy world. And so he and I are working on that. And then I just printed out a 380-page manuscript that I'm working on that's sort of semi semi-autobiographical because I've done some pretty cool things and I've lived some pretty cool places so I'm drawing from those and I've known some yeah. really interesting people and so kind of pulling all that together into a kind of an auto autobiographical novel that that's and I figure this will probably never be published I don't really care I'm Emily Dickinson wrote a, a lot of her poetry and put it in a drawer and literally left it I mean planned on leaving it planned on destroying it except they found it and so they published it and you know now well we have emily dickinson yeah for sure but but i i imagine that there so i realized that i had i was writing with the glee of getting published for a long time and and uh with this novel i said you know what i think i'm going to write it as if i will not ever try to publish it and then i'll destroy it because that, by the way, is the real novel I need to write. So I'm working on that. All right. That's a, that's a interesting approach. But yeah. I would say lines up with 
<laughs> a lot of the things we've talked about today. Um, well, hey, man, uh, I think we can go ahead and uh, wrap this up for today. But Great. it has been awesome talking hey, to you. Hey, likewise. And, um, uh, just, you know, awesome small world that we kind of know a lot of the same people. You know, my Aunt Joy. And it's amazing stuff. But, um, yeah, but y- you've had uh, what I would uh, sum up as an amazing life, it sounds like. Yeah. So uh, I was really looking forward to talking with you today, especially, uh, again, I didn't know that you were a philosophy professor until <laughs> somewhat recently within the last few months. Yeah. And um, I even saw you talking with uh, Ardith Morris. Oh, yeah. Uh, Good friend of mine. Y- yes, I mean, my wife and I, too. We've uh, gone on a c- couple of trips together. Okay. We went to Italy together. One, uh, Wellen, uh, who we Wellen. call Shanky. Love him. Uh, but he um, <laughs> he stopped by the studio a while back, and uh, he'd shown me his hand. But he, uh, he, I was thinking. How is his hand? It's, it's pretty good. I gave him this thing I had that I use sometimes for carpal tunnel. Yeah. Um. That he that was like something you could squeeze your fingers on. Yeah. But he it was you know he was scarred injured yes. injured pretty badly. Mm-hmm. Set set building. Yes. Yeah. But he was one of that group of ninth graders that I was a TA in that class, and he yeah. went on to do theater. Um, yeah. But I just caught up with him recently. Ardith gave me a couple old uh, record players turntables. Um, and I, I kind of fixed them up. Part of is probably the most generous person I know. She is a, a, a treasure. Uh, yeah. I really uh, admire her, and uh, is just I- an awesome person. Yeah, so, yeah. I need to see her because we've been talking about going to Greece. But she's been talking. We've been talking about that for a long time, and I've sort of been backing out along the way. But I need to back back in. Yeah. One of my red gunk stories is about this fat guy named Otis Onasubrowski. He's a cable TV guy who's a little on the slow side going to Greece and what he experiences there. It's he, pretty uh, mind-blowing. Such a, <laughs> the, well, just, you know, it's just like Candide. Um, mm-hmm. Like, stories of world travel are mm-hmm. interesting, and you can tell mm-hmm. a, a, a people a lot about places and ideas through, I, I mean, I, I, that's one thing that, that stands out about Candide. And uh, an, one last thing, um, I was thinking back on Voltaire, you know, and poetry, you were saying a second ago. Yeah. I just read this story. You know, he went to Frederick the Great's court. But Frederick the Great, before he was even king, was admiring Voltaire. And so he goes to tutor Frederick in poetry mm-hmm. and uh, philosophy. And, uh, and they have a falling out. And Voltaire takes Frederick's poems, <laughs> and they're bad. <laughs> They're bad poems, and he's going to take them and publish them to embarrass him. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. he gets stopped at the border, <laughs> and I think has to spend a few days or a few weeks, one, in, pr- in a jail. Um, yeah, but he got stopped leaving Prussia. Yeah, but yeah, just a funny story. <laughs> anyway, but um, yeah, but I, I have had a really great time talking to you, and I, I well, do appreciate you coming out, coming out. And uh, thanks to Ben. Because uh, I think this was maybe his idea. It. He so suggested it, yeah. yeah well and I'm glad he did. Me too. Me too. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank we'll you. We'll talk to you soon. What a pleasure.